We start off the show today, though, uh, talking to a woman who posted some video that is extremely troubling. It is frightening video showing a woman being followed. And Jamie Coots joins me on the line to talk a bit more about this. Jamie, thanks so much for taking the time and joining the program. Thank you for having me. Well, this video is getting a lot of attention, which I think is good on that sense and that people are seeing this and people are concerned about safety and making sure that you're okay. What happened? Can you tell us how this unfolded? Yeah, of course. Yeah, It really is getting a lot of attention. And I didn't really realize that when posting it either, I kind of just thought, you know, it's a neighborhood and and scary things are happening right now. So I did go ahead and post it. It really is blowing up. Um, so yesterday around five o'clock, I actually went to a shopper's drug mart on Gunsmere and Granville Street just to pick up a couple things. And on my walk home, it's about, I would say it's probably about a 20 minute walk for me around Kiefer, uh, Kiefer Place. Um, I noticed somebody was following me really closely behind. <clears throat> and so I actually just veered off the path so I could let him move and, and, and passed me and he stopped as soon as I stopped. So I said to him, you're walking too close to me. And he didn't say anything. Hmm. So I decided to keep walking. And that's when I noticed he was still following, but instead about five feet behind me. So <clears throat> me being in my neighborhood, I decided to do a couple laps in the same area just to, just to make sure that he was purposely following me. And, um, and when I realized that he was, I decided to start recording it. So, so you brought your phone out and you held your phone out. Were you concerned at all uh, at this point uh, when you did this that you'd already kind of confronted him? Uh, did he say anything when you said, hey, you're, you're walking too close to me? He said not a word, nothing. Hmm. Um, the reason why I decided to pull out my phone was I wanted to keep moving and I wanted to get somewhere safe. But because I was close to my home, I didn't want to go inside my home. Right. So I pulled out my phone. Um, a lot of people asked me why I didn't call the police. Well, with him being behind me and me not being sure how close he was behind me, I decided to be a safer bet to record what was happening. And with it on, it was on selfie mode. So I was able to see what he was, ha- what he was doing behind me while walking at the same time. And did that prompt anything when he, or did he see and realize that you were he recording? Saw. No, yeah, he saw, he looked right at the camera and he didn't care at all. At one point, I know you referenced in the video and talked about the fact that it looked like he pulled something out of his pocket. What happened there? Unfortunately, because I was walking at the same time and, and kind of in that state of mind, I wasn't aware of what was happening until later when I went and looked at the video. A lot of people, it's so hard to say. Like, you know, you can't, you can't make judgments unless you know. But a lot of people have said it looks like he had a switchblade or something. And, and how did you end up, uh, like you said, you walked a couple of laps. You're close to home. You don't want this person yeah. to know exactly where you live. How did you end up getting out of that situation? Well, my initial thought was um, I wanted to go into a public area, somewhere where there was maybe security, and I knew that there was a bank close by, and I knew one of the security guards there, so my plan was to go inside there, but it was closed. It was 530. Mm. (laughs) So um, I didn't want to go into a little coffee shop in the area. They tend to be very dead, and usually there's just like one young woman working. So I thought about what was kind of the busiest area and and where I could kind of have some backup if something did happen. So I decided to walk to the state park. And were there other people there? Yes, there was a lot of people there. And while this happened, while you were getting to that point and thinking about how to get out of this and to stay safe, did other people around you see what was happening or or did people, did you get the impression 
that other people knew this man was following you? See, it's so hard to say, but obviously when I was in the moment, I was just walking and I was kind of in my own head and just focusing on the camera so I could make sure I would see what was happening behind me. But um, when I looked back in the video, um, at one point I was outside the juke chicken and there was a girl that looked in the video quite, quite concerned for me. And then um, I actually got a message over Facebook not too long ago saying, actually from two different people, one person said that they saw me walk past their work looking concerned. Um, and then another person said that, that I walked right past them as well and she was worried and wondered if she should have said something and now she, she regrets and wished that she did. Hmm. I, I thought I saw someone too say that they thought they had seen this same individual possibly uh, having done this to another woman or they'd seen him following yeah, someone else. So about, um, about four different women have come forward saying that they have followed him as well. Some during the day, I think one girl said at night. Um, all of them were able to get away safely. But none of them, unfortunately, contacted the police. I don't think they, you know, I actually didn't really think about it until until I posted on social media and people started saying it to me, too. It's so funny how, for some reason, our brains don't go there right away when, when we're put in kind of a dangerous situation. But I'm, I've asked them all to come forward because I think that it's going to really help build the case and find this guy. Obviously, this isn't a first. Right. Did you did you contact then after this happened? Did you contact and report this to the police? Yeah. So I as soon as this happened and I got home, I posted it on social media and a good friend of mine said, you know, contact the police right away. And so I did do that. So I do have a file number for them. Uh, how does it make you feel as far as that neighborhood? Like you said, this is a neighborhood where you'll go to the drugstore where you live. Yeah. How, how do you feel about going out in that neighborhood now? Right now? I'm a little bit nervous, but more so disappointed because with everything going on right now and, and the COVID restrictions, there aren't really a lot of opportunities to, to leave the house and get fresh air. So when I go outside and I walk and I go to the store, I go to the gym, I really enjoy that time. And I don't drive. Um, walking is my, like, I, I live downtown so I can walk places. And I feel like that's kind of at least temporarily taken away from me. Hmm. All right. Well, Jamie, thanks for joining us uh, to raise uh, the awareness about this. Uh, and like you said, not knowing when you put this on social media, others have come forward uh, with similar scenarios. And now police uh, will have that to go on. Thanks so much for joining us uh, to talk more about this. Thank you so much for having me. Well, at this point, officials who are investigating the attack in Atlanta, Georgia, where six women, six Asian women were killed, they're not saying at this point if it was racially motivated. We have learned more about the victims and are learning a bit more about the suspect, the man who was responsible for these as well. And as the investigation continues, it is the words of one of the police captains that have a lot of people wondering, well, wondering why exactly he would say this. Take a listen to what Captain Jay Baker said following the shooting spree. He understood um, the gravity of it, and he was pretty much fed up and kind of at the end of his rope, and, um, and yesterday was a really bad day for him, and this is what he did. Let's bring in our next guest, and Angela Marie McDougall joins me now, Executive Director of the Battered Women's Support Services. Angela, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, Joe, what are we doing? 
dealing with when we've got uh, a statement from law enforcement like that, honestly. There are so many things. <laughs> there are so many things uh, to go through in this uh, particular story. Uh, let's start with that, though. And, and your reaction when you hear, and, and I know a lot of people are calling out this police captain, saying that this guy was having a bad day. How many ways can we excuse the killings? How many ways can we minimize and deny uh, you know, the accountability for a killer, uh, and then somehow hold victims accountable, uh, responsible in terms of victim blaming. How many ways have we not seen, have we seen police do this? It's just appalling, actually. Uh, and, and, but also, I guess, telling, because we've, of course, had decades of this exact kind of minimization and denying and, and blaming of victims uh, you know, for generations. But the best part is that we're not standing for it anymore. And when we say, when you say we're not standing for it anymore, how do you, how do you fight back against something like this? Because more information today too has been released. People looking back at this particular police captain's uh, social media posts in the past, and some very questionable posts, especially uh, when talking about Asian Americans. So. We are reckoning right now with the uh, intersection of misogyny and race and, and also policing. This, uh, you know, this is uh, on the heels of the killing of George Floyd, uh, all of the uprising that has happened in looking at police brutality and questioning the role of police in, in, you know, in, in, to the extent to which they are safe and a safe option. Uh, and so it's um, what is helpful right now is the role of social media and then as well as media and drawing attention to what is very problematic um, responses from individuals and in law enforcement and in positions of power. It's um, it's not new, but what is new is the visibility of how troubling this is and how endemic and epidemic it is. And it, what is new is the uh, the, uh, the outrage that um, that we can express as a community across the world. Uh, there has been a lot of talk about this as well. And as we got more information on whether or not it, it was racially motivated, I mean, do you think, does it matter when we have somebody who, because he claims to have a sexual addiction, decides to take it out on women? And, and I mean, there, there was a man, uh, there were men, male victims as well, but, but, but the majority of people that were targeted in this targeted were women. We can't separate race here. Uh, you know, the United States has a long history of colonization in Asia, all throughout Asia, Central Asia, Eastern Asia, South Asia, um, and, you know, in Polynesia. So these, that history is not uh, separate from their, to, to, the, to how uh, people in the United States view Asian people, and Asian women specifically, because there's a very gendered, uh, relationship to that, where we saw certainly like uh, there's a whole historical piece that we need to look at in terms of Asian women uh, being um, uh, you know part of uh, experiencing sexualized violence through colonization and through um, you know the United States various wars, and then what that means in the present day. It is it is um, it is a um, uh, it is completely inaccurate to say that this is not racially motivated. The race. And gender relationship are so intertwined that we, in this case and others, that we cannot separate them. And it's necessary, especially for us in Canada, to recognize that we have our own uh, issues around uh, race and gender and that, in, and that, in, that very clear intersection 
that we haven't reckoned with. And so uh, this is a chance to certainly look at the United States and be critical, but we have to also look in the mirror uh, here in Canada and reflect on how those same ideas show up uh, um, in Canada. And when we talk about race, especially in this case as well, how do you, when you talk about reckoning with this exactly, when we talk about the victims and the fact that, mm. that many of the victims were, were Asian American women, but also the, the perpetrator being a white man being treated that way, I mean, I can't imagine if he wasn't white that he wouldn't have been referred to as somebody who was having a bad day. And that's exactly it, isn't it? The um, how quick uh, excuses are made for, uh, in, you know, for white men's behavior, uh, and and by police. I mean, we don't. Uh, men of color certainly do not get that kind of treatment uh, and that um, that latitude in terms of explaining their behavior. So this is um, this is a very serious problem, and it and it is about racism. It is it is about racism, and it's also about. Uh, a particular kind of a version of hatred of a particular type of woman. And so that, um, uh, what, you know, it, it's laid bare right now. It, the, the cover is off. Uh, you know, we're seeing clearly what has uh, been at the heart of uh, policing, that's been at the heart of um, the, the, these false hierarchies of human value, where we have, in this case, a white man who is a killer, his needs uh, being assessed and, and given any kind of um, consideration after killing nine people, uh, eight people. Do you think that the fact that there is such outrage over that one phrase and the way that that police captain responded, does that show that there is change happening, albeit slowly, but that people are paying attention to this and realizing that it is a big problem? We have to connect the dots uh, of uh, Black Lives Matter, quite frankly, uh, going back to Ferguson, uh, Missouri, uh, and uh, up to present day, and as well as uh, organizing that's happened here in Canada with Indigenous people around land and pipelines. And uh, we, have to, we have to follow that, that, those lines. We have to connect those dots and, and that we're developing a critical mass, I think, and drawing attention to uh, what I just, you know, what I describe as the, these false hierarchies of human value that would, you know, that would position, um, that would position, uh, you know, in this case, Asian women at the bottom of the, of, of the stratification. And this is exactly what we want to disrupt. We want equity and, and liberation and in, in, in redressing uh, what has been a well-worn path of, um, of racialized, uh, gendered violence on both sides of the border. Uh, Angela, I want to talk to you. Uh, we, there is much more to talk about this, and, and we will continue uh, covering this and seeing what happens here. But uh, after we invited you to come on the show to talk about this, uh, we also uh, started uh, to look at another story, and we actually started the show talking to a Vancouver woman who posted a video that yeah. is really getting a lot of attention, where yesterday she was followed for about a half hour, 40 minutes by a man. Uh, she made a video of it. She's reported it to the police. Uh, that comes at the same time police have put out a video of a woman in the same kind of downtown area who was punched in the face uh, in an unprovoked attack. What do you say or how do you respond when you hear stories like that? Well, I, I you know, I, I really um, honor uh, the woman and in, in, in making, um, you know, and memorializing her experience uh, through video. Uh, this is, of, co- of course, an experience of uh, countless women all across Canada and girls uh, have experienced. I don't I don't know 
uh, of any girl that hasn't had some, or young woman or woman that hasn't had some experience like that, that then has could have even you know uh, in, included um, sexualized violence in terms of touching or groping or something like that. This is um, this is a, a, a well-worn path in a sense. Gender-based violence is endemic. This uh, um, you know this this part around being followed um, and uh, is um, a serious problem. And, um, and, and also that the stranger uh, assaults is um, a problem, a serious problem. And you can see that uh, women are done, uh, you know, taking it in a sense, uh, in that there's a global uh, response. Uh, and again, through the benefit of having, being able to memorialize these experiences through video and other means and then sharing through social media and making, making it visible because mostly it's been rendered invisible because of the unwillingness of believing when survivors share their stories. And so we have the receipts, we're bringing our receipts and we're sharing them widely. And I think it's a good thing. It's a, it's a good thing for the culture. I mean, unfortunately, some of the comments that I mean, social media can be a horrible place at the best of times. But unfortunately, some of the comments were, were negative uh, to her. Like, oh, it's not such a big deal. He didn't say anything. He didn't touch you. He didn't. Do this. What do you say to people who downplay the fact that this woman was followed for 40 minutes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, well, they're wrong. And so uh, this this part of minimizing and denying it, it, it's in the same pattern as what we were just talking about in terms of that member of law enforcement in the U.S. It's the same idea to it's the how normalized gender based violence is, how normalized it is uh, as, and, and how much then the idea that it, sh- that, it, that it doesn't matter. Our experiences don't matter. But women live in fear. Uh, girls and women are socialized to navigate the physical environment to avoid, um, you know, uh, sexualized violence and, and these experiences. And, and you know, every, you know, like, so it's kind of a it's it's kind of like the water that we're the air that we breathe in and uh, the water that we drink. It is uh, the, it is the hum uh, in the background of our daily lives. Just to, and so when this happens, where a woman is sharing her experience. Uh, yes, the culture is, there's going to be responses that are going to say, uh, oh, it's not a big deal. But this is exactly the problems in our culture that we're trying to disrupt. This is exactly these beliefs and values that have uh, allowed there to be uh, a lack of accountability around gender violence for at least the last uh, 120 years. And this is exactly what we want to disrupt. And so women are taking action in a number of different ways, uh, individually, in groups, through social media, uh, and through organizations like Battery Women Support Services all across the land. And it's a good thing. All right. Angela Marie McDougall, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks, as always, for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Jill. Well, that is some good news. Uh, if you are in those groups of essential workers, as we just heard in the COVID-19 vaccine update, more than 300,000 frontline workers are going to be bumped up the line because we have more vaccine available now. So they will be getting the shot if they want the shot sooner than anticipated. So that includes first responders, uh, first responders, educational staff, childcare staff, uh, workers in grocery stores, postal workers, uh, manufacturing, wholesale warehousing employees, uh, staff living in congregate housing, uh, things like uh, facility staff, cross-border transport staff, and uh, other groups as well. So some 
Good news there. What about what's happening in long-term care, though? Right now, we're going to talk about restrictions and the statement made yesterday by the Premier that once people are vaccinated, we could see some more flexibility. Terry Lake joins us now, the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me again, Jill. Have things changed at all as far as what people living in long-term care can do now that they've been given, uh, I think, for, for everybody at least, the first shot? Uh, Sadly, no. Uh, All of the same restrictions are in place. So for over a year now, um, people in long-term care have been isolated from each other, isolated from their family and friends. And as you mentioned, uh, everyone has received the vaccine, at least the first. Uh, Many have had the second dose. All the staff have been vaccinated that that have agreed to be vaccinated. So I, I think it's high time that we started easing restrictions on activities to improve the quality of life for those in care. Uh, Let's let people sit together at at dinner or lunch. Let's have some social activities uh, once again to, you know, as I say, bring back some quality of life. Uh, So even at this point, with with everybody having the vaccine, they're not allowed to gather, say, in the communal dining room? Well, they have to remain six feet apart and uh, all the same, you know, precautions uh, that were in place are still in place. Now, some of the health authorities have reached out to providers and asked for, you know, um, how should we transition to more activities? So at least they're thinking about it, Jill. But it's really uh, high time that we allowed people in long-term care to to have a a bit of a social life again. And and hopefully, uh, with spring coming, open up visitor uh, restrictions so that families can be together again. Uh, because it must be, I mean, this was kind of the light at the end of the tunnel that people were waiting for and were being told that this was the light at the end of the tunnel. That's got to be really hard on somebody, uh, on your mental health, if you've now had the vaccine, but you're not allowed to do any of the things that that bring that quality of life. Well, it's a, a bit of a mixed blessing with the vaccine. I think there's a great sense of relief on the part of uh, residents and their families. Uh, But yes, there is an expectation that, uh, you know, a couple of weeks after the vaccine, uh, if everyone's had it, then why can't they resume some more normal activities within the nursing home itself? And so I'm really hoping that uh, Dr. Henry and her team will will start uh, thinking about this and and allow people to have more more fun in uh, in the places in which they live. Uh, and what would happen then if residents just decided they were going to do that or if a, a long-term care facility went on its own and, and, and opened up the dining room and brought the activities back and just went that route? Well, you can imagine that operators, whether they're health authority or contracted operators, uh, will simply not uh, do anything that's not approved by the provincial health officer and the medical health officers. Um, you know, this is a very highly regulated environment. And they don't want to go offside. Uh, you can imagine that um, the liability issues uh, uh, are something they worry about. Uh, and that's, a, that's another issue, Jill, is that insurance companies will no longer cover for infectious diseases. And so uh, we have this double whammy for operators because they, they are very, very concerned about their residents, about the families of the residents. But they also have to be very concerned about their own liability and uh, making sure they follow all the orders to a T. Uh, is one of the issues the fact that we, we do see in some cases, because it is voluntary and that's the way we deal with vaccine uh, in this country, uh, that there will be long-term care facilities where there is a percentage of staff that won't have been vaccinated. Is that part of it, do you think? 
Uh, that's possible, I suppose. We do know that in Cottonwoods, the uh, IHA owned and operated site in Kelowna uh, had an outbreak despite a vaccination program because around 35% of staff uh, did not want to uh, take the vaccine. And, you know, I've suggested that a simple solution there is to have a mandatory uh, antigen rapid test before every shift if for those folks who don't want to take the vaccine. But, you know, we have to find a way to improve the quality of life for people that have had such a, a very bad year. Uh, and it's, it has been longer than a year now uh, since we had the public health emergency and the first outbreak in a long-term care home in B.C. And when we talk about that as well and things kind of getting back to some form of normal, you mentioned visitors also, and we'd been told a while ago that there would be a, an expansion of essential visitors and allowing more people to become family visitors. Has anything changed there? Uh, again, uh, not much has changed because um, operators are still waiting to hear from uh, Dr. Henry and her team when those uh, restrictions can be lifted, when they can have more than one social visitor, for instance. Um, you know, there have been some directives and, and clarifications on uh, what constitutes an essential visitor. And I think that's been helpful for some families that have been arguing to become essential visitors. Uh, but by and large, uh, nothing has changed um, because we're still waiting for those uh, orders to come from Dr. Henry. Uh, because that's got to be something too and I mean I guess we don't if you're not in that situation if you're not somebody living in long-term care or if you're not a family member uh, you don't probably think about it as much but just how important it is that 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 people get to see their loved ones and that loved ones see not that they're not happy to see the one person but my guess is they would like to see more people in their family as well well, of course, there are grandchildren uh, that uh, probably haven't ever been seen by some people living in care, and so they would love the opportunity to expand uh, the number of people that can come and see them. I mean, uh, the, the quality of life over the past year, um, and, you know, I always remind people that in any one year, about 25% of those living in care will pass away, and for many people, their very last year uh, of life was spent separated from their loved ones, and so... The sooner we can do something about that, the better. And so at this point, uh, even with the Premier talking about the easing of some restrictions for people vaccinated, have you heard anything specific about long-term care? Nothing yet. Uh, We keep hearing uh, towards the end of the month. Um, So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that with the advent of spring that we'll be able to, uh, to have some easing of restrictions. All right. Terry Lake, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you, Jill. Appreciate it. Well, I know a lot of people go on to Craigslist uh, looking for free things, maybe looking to get rid of things that they have around the house. But it's also used for rental properties to find housing. And my next guest is the author of a report that shows we can tell a lot about the rental housing market from those listings. And Riley Iwamoto joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so what specifically were you looking at when looking at housing and rentals on Craigslist? Uh, well, when we set out to um, start collecting the data, we wanted to grab the kitchen sink. So everything that was in an ad and between all the ads, what uh, patterns it could show us. Of course, the, most, uh, the foremost thing people ask is how much is rent or what does the supply look like? And uh, we looked at a lot of those basic indicators in our uh, analysis there. And I think it was the supply and the uh, availability of larger units that's 
units with more bedrooms, say, rather than square footage. Um, relative to the other reports you'll find out there that uh, jumped out. So you looked at, from what I understand, more than 17,000 ads over a five-month period, and then you were able to get a much better idea of price and what, uh, I guess, what your dollar would get you in places uh, throughout Metro Vancouver? Correct. Yeah, that was, uh, we didn't quite plan, plan it that way, but uh, it was the five months leading right up to the start of the pandemic. So October 2019 to February 2020. And not, not a huge surprise when uh, the bigger the homes, the more bedrooms in, in the homes, the more expensive, more expensive they are. Um, what else did you find maybe that stands out as far as the type of housing available and the prices out there? Well, um, so like you said, uh, the larger the home, the more bedrooms, the more expensive it is. But uh, we took a bit of a novel approach and broke down the price per bedroom. And you'll find the affordability of it when you assume that each bedroom is rented by an income earning adult, uh, it flips upside down. So the more bedrooms, uh, the more affordable the price per bedroom is. Uh, and this kind of maps out roughly to how you see, you know, towers in the downtown core kind of gradiating out to uh, more detached homes out in Surrey. So the most expensive per bedroom is a single bedroom unit, uh, bachelors and studios, a little bit less than that. Um, but as you go to or it's three bedrooms or more, you know, be it a townhouse or a basement suite or main floor of a house, uh, you find the price per bedroom about cut in half. Uh, so is, is it looking at it more than you're looking at what would be roommate situations rather than, say, families? Roommate situations or families uh, sharing with people, um, you, you may find a lot of those units too. Um, and uh, I guess anecdotally, I was one of the many people who had to move last year. Uh, you'll find that a lot of these homes, they're retrofitted uh, um, into uh, you know several different units. So uh, we came across one house that was being renovated at the time. It was you know, by the land use code, it would say it's a single family house, suggesting that there's only one family, maybe a four. In it. But they had um, quite spaciously reconfigured it to a four bedroom on the top two floors, a two bedroom on the main floor and a one bedroom basement suite. So all of a sudden, without really bringing in a bulldozer, you bring in more affordability and more units. Uh, were you able to find then where uh, the most expensive uh, neighborhoods are and, and the most affordable? Cool Harbor. <laughs> <laughs> Easily. Uh, we did uh, take a median household income for the whole region. So, um, you know, the median uh, family, we kind of assumed in the model that uh, there were two income adults here, whether they be uh, a couple with or without children. And uh, mapped out the um, affordability um, as a percentage of their income monthly. Um, and Coal Harbor would be about 150, 160 sorry, uh, of their monthly income uh, just to pay rent. So that's clearly unaffordable. And you don't really drop below the, you don't see rents in uh, areas dropping below 30%, which is generally accepted as a measure of affordability until you get into Surrey and further east.
Uh, well, it's interesting, interesting findings. And and why did you choose Craigslist? Just because it was a, a place where you could kind of find all of the information that was already there? Or was there something about Craigslist itself that you wanted to make sure you got? So the this project kind of came off of the heels of another one uh, done by undergrads at uh, UBC. And Sherry had commissioned them to uh, develop the tool that we ended up uh, further. Uh, oops, sorry, I'm getting a bit of a ringing. Um, and uh, the results from that were pretty promising. So we wanted to see what it would say about Vancouver overall. And we were comparing it to reports like you get from the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation's annual report, uh, see what it would say differently about composition, uh, as well as other uh, classified uh, companies like Padmapper, Rentals.ca. All right. Well, it is uh, interesting findings, uh, interesting data for sure. We'll have to leave it there. Riley, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thank you, Jill.